If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to go to Matthew chapter 27 with me this morning. Matthew chapter 27. I want to say three things to you first, and I want to get your response, all right? And today I really hope, besides just Mary, that some others will respond, okay? Mary's this dear saint in the back of the room, and she talks to me while I preach, and I love it. But I hope some more of you will as well, all right? Here are my three big statements. Number one, Christ the Lord is risen today. Jesus is alive, and the grave is empty. Now, that's not bad. All right, that's not bad. Those Those are three things, and I have to tell you, these are not just statements for me. I really, in a time when often preaching is very generic, I need to make this very personal today. For me, I have to tell you, I've been gripped by this. I believe with every fiber of my being that Jesus Christ is risen today, that he is alive and that the grave is empty. One of the joys I've had, I've been to Israel four times. I've been to all of the different places that they think he might have been, and they all hold this in common. He's not there. He's not there. But as I read this passage for you this morning, Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, and then through the end of chapter 28, I need to make this statement because here's what I want to address today on Easter Sunday of 2016. The resurrection is what we have been celebrating in song, the word of God, and prayer and everything. But here's here's the scoop. Either the resurrection is history's greatest conspiracy or... The resurrection is mankind's greatest hope. It's one or the other. It can't be a bit of both. And don't think that this world is not fixated on it. I said to the music team when we were practicing early this morning, I surfed all the channels last night and found eight different programs dealing with the resurrection of Jesus last night between 9 and 10-ish on all the different channels of satellite television. CNN's uh, documentary fascinated me most because it was titled this, The Resurrection, okay? It was either faith, fact, or forgery. And the emphasis was on forgery, all right? These are the types of things. But now I want you to think about that as I read this passage. And let's go back to Matthew chapter 27. And I want you to feel this. In fact, just recently there was a movie in theaters called Risen, which is really based on this entire passage. But I want you to smell the heat and the dust in the air. I want you to feel the passion and the emotions of all the parties involved, the tenseness, the tension that would have been in the air that you could have cut with a knife. It was palpable because something... That that had never happened in human history has about to happen, and it has never happened since. So Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 62, Matthew, who was there, an eyewitness under the inspiration of God, writes these words. The next day, now this is Saturday. When he says the next day, Saturday, that is after the day of preparation. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Pilate was a Roman pagan, an oppressor. He was there in Israel to make sure that Rome ruled, all right? So they go to Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, because of that, 
order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Here's the reason why. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first one. So hold on to the idea that these guys knew if this happens, this is bad. All right? Pilate, verse 65, said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, that's Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that's Sunday, which is why we are doing what we are doing today, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, that's Matthew's favorite word, behold, look, pay attention, behold, there was a great earthquake and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone, and I love this, and sat on it. I love that. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Rolls it back and sits on it and looks at these guys and says, what are you going to do about it? All right? Now notice this. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards, notice what it says, trembled and became like dead men. They all fainted in fear. They passed out. If you've ever watched America's Funniest Home Videos and you see those people that are on those bungee cord type fling, flingy thingies and it gets released and everybody's, ah, 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 and then they're gone. Right? We've all laughed. That's what the, they had a complete anxiety panic attack and they're gone out of fear and trembling. Verse 5, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Why? For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And notice what he says next. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with, notice this collage of emotions, with fear and great joy. They were both afraid and joyful. Have you ever felt that? I remember at the birth of all of our children, I had fear and joy combined. All right? They were filled with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And again, and behold, Jesus met them and said, I love this, greetings. As if I told you, I'm here. Greetings. And they came up, and notice this, and they came up and took hold of his feet. These people fall to their face, not as dead men, but as worshipers. And they grabbed hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Now notice, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. So the dudes wake up. They wake up and all is gone. Stone, oh, grave empty, people not around. And notice what they do. They go and they tell the chief priests all that had taken place. They tell them what actually took place. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, now, here's Corruption 101. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, here's your, here's your story now. Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So they fulfilled their own fear. 
That's what they're now telling them. Verse 14, and if this comes to the governor's ears, that's Pilate, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they're basically saying, listen, you will not die for this. You won't suffer for this. Go with this story and we'll protect you. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, in literal context, Matthew is writing this gospel likely somewhere in the 50s. This is 20 plus years later, and that story is still being told. According to CNN, it's still being told 2,000 years later. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now notice this again. They worshipped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here's the promise. And behold, again, I am with you always to the end of the age. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And I pray that I can be as excited as I feel for you. I'm reading this book right now by a guy named Mark Jones, and the title of the book is called Knowing Jesus. And I'm loving this book because he puts Jesus as the central human figure of history. And he puts it in perspective. If you know your Bible at all, I want you to think about some of the great names of the Bible that maybe you heard in Sunday school or maybe you've heard as you've been walking through life. Names like Abraham who was considered the father of Israel. And even the Palestinians would claim Abraham as their father. Guys like Joseph, that great guy who was a slave that rose to power in Egypt, or Moses, who freed his people from Egyptian slavery after 400 years. By the way, to this day in Israel, you ask the average Jewish person who's the greatest Jew to ever live, and they'll answer Moses. Moses, think of him. Joshua, that great captain that led Israel into the promised land. Or Ruth, that Gentile lady that married into the line of Christ. There's King David. There's those dueling prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Then there's that famous guy named Daniel in the lion's den. Or Mary, the mother of Jesus. What about John the Baptist, that great pastor, preacher? And then there's Peter and Paul. But then if you go back even further and think of history and think of church history, guys like Augustine or John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther or Charles Spurgeon. Think about all the political figures that we have known and studied throughout of history. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Winston Churchill, Ronald Reagan and others. But who are these people? Even those who we considered great saints, great conquerors, great who are they compared to Jesus Christ? One man has said, they're like a grain of sand compared to Mount Everest. What is Samson's strength compared to that of Jesus, who was raised in power? What of Solomon's wisdom compared to the one who named all the stars? What is Methuselah's age, the oldest man that ever lived, who lived to be 960 odd years old, compared to the Alpha and Omega of Jesus, the one who inhabits eternity? What what are Paul's heavenly visions compared with the incarnation and the resurrection of the God-man, Jesus? I want you to think about Jesus. James Allen Francis, in his sermon, Arise, Sir Knight, wrote these words. I want you to soak them in. Here's what he writes. 
Jesus. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never owned a house. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that are usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. And 20 centuries have come and gone. And today, in the 21st century, on March the 27th of 2016, He, Jesus, stands as the central figure of the human race. James uh, Allen says this, I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as this one solitary life. That is Jesus. Now, let me go a step further. Those of you here in this room who would say, I believe in Jesus. I don't just know of him. I just don't know things about him. I believe in him. I have put my faith and my trust in him. Those of us in this room who've said, we've confessed our sinfulness. We're not just people that have done a few bad things. We're bad people, and so we do bad things. And we've admitted that we need a Savior. Those of us who have repented, not only of our wickedness, but even our attempts at being good for all the wrong reasons. When we do all those things, the Bible says we're saved, or were born again, or maybe you've heard the word converted. If you believe this, you're made right with God. You're declared righteous. You're adopted. You're cleansed. You're then adopted as sons and daughters of God. You're indwelt with God's Holy Spirit. You're assured of eternal life with Jesus. And that's for me and for you and for all those who have done this and believe in Jesus, who according to Hebrews is the author and finisher of it, then if you believe all of that, we can say with Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Are you ready? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen? Really? Amen? Amen. Here comes the bait and switch, right? If all that is true, then why do so many of us not live our lives right here and now like it is true? Where is the radical in our lives? That Jesus has done something amazing. Why don't we live our lives in 2016 with that kind of hope and assurance and promise and joy and pleasure and even commission? If Jesus, if Jesus really lived and he died and then we believe that he rose again and if you believe that, that single truth makes everything different, right? It really does. G.K. Chesterton, I read this quote last Easter. I'm going to read it again, and I hope that I'll read it every year. He said this, On the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. 
in varying ways, they realized the new wonder. But even they hardly realized that the world died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of the gardener, God walked in the garden in the cool, not the evening, but the dawn. This is what happened over 2,000 years ago, and it is true today. But in our text, in Matthew chapter 27 and 28, you'll see that your position on this, your position on the resurrection, what you believe, and what I mean by that is not what you give lip service to. I mean what your honest position on the resurrection is will spell out your life. It really, really will. So on this Resurrection Sunday, I want us to see from Matthew this. Religion. Now listen to me when I say this, because I believe we are in one of the most religious provinces in this country. I have been surrounded by religion my whole life, but religion wants Jesus dead and to stay dead. Hear me now. Faith, real faith, not only believes that Jesus is alive, but proclaims it. You give up everything for it, and you trust in it. And no matter what this world has to offer, no matter what your life circumstances, it doesn't mean we don't doubt, because sometimes even we'll question. But we always run to Jesus, and we totally believe. Some of my favorite verses are in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 20. It says, for all the promises of God find their yes in who? Jesus, him. Jesus Christ. And and then Paul says, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our heart as a guarantee. So when I read their passage, did you hear it? Did you let your mind and your heart race and be filled with the wonder of all of the collision of emotions that were there? The fear, the trembling, the worship, the joy, the excitement, the passing out, the the anxiety, the tension, the desperation of all the human beings that were involved in this, both of those who believed and those who disbelieved. And while you see the difference between the two, hmm, I want you to ask yourself, what group do you belong to? Those who trust or those who don't trust. So if you write stuff down, here's what I want to give you. I want to give you four things to take away. Number one, I want you to get this on Easter Sunday, all right? Religion works hard to stop from happening what it says it doesn't believe in. Okay, I want you to get that. Religion works really hard to stop from happening what it says it doesn't believe in. Notice in our passage in chapter 27, verse 62 to the beginning of chapter 28, the Pharisees and the chief priests, that's members of the Sanhedrin, they get together again. And what's here is actually quite humorous because our passage says that on the, on the next day, on the Sabbath, that's the holy day, they go to Pilate. Now, you've got to realize what that meant. In Judaism, if you're celebrating the Sabbath, especially the Passover Sabbath, you are supposed to be unclean. You're supposed to be, sorry, clean. You can't be unclean or you can't participate. And according to Jews, Gentiles are unclean. And so for them to go into the fortress of Antonia, which was where Pilate was connected to the old city of Jerusalem, and to go in there and have contact with him and see, meant they, they made themselves unclean for the very holy day that they said they were there to worship. That's what religion does. It always is confusing. And so they go before him and they say, good sir, 
And that's what I find so humorous. They want to make sure that nothing happens of what they don't believe is supposed to happen anyway. And it's what I find humorous about atheists today. I don't understand why atheists are so busy trying to convince you and me that there is no God. If there's no God, chill out. It'll be obvious. But you get an atheist and he seems or she seems consumed with wanting to make everybody believe there's no God. Well, if you're right, relax. If these guys are right, what do they have to fear? But see, the fact that they go through all of this proves that something was nagging at them. And they go through all this work. Notice that these unbelievers have more worry and even more knowledge of Jesus' words than his followers did. And so Donald Hagner writes this, Jesus' opponents took Jesus' words about rising from the dead more seriously than they did disciples. Did you notice that when John read Luke 24? And they're walking along, and they're like, listen, and it's Jesus. And they're like, are you the only guy that doesn't know what's been happening? Again, you don't think God doesn't have a sense of humor? And, and, and they, they say to him, and these women, they, they say they saw the tomb, but we, we don't even know if we believe it. Meanwhile, somewhere back in Jerusalem, there's a bunch of guys who say they don't believe it, and they're really concerned about it. Okay? And I want you to see that. They set Jesus in a grave. They put a stone in front of it that several men, a garrison likely needed to move it. They put a seal upon it. Then they set a watch to watch both the seal, the stone, and the grave. I would say they wanted Jesus dead, and they wanted him buried, and they wanted him to stay dead and buried because that's what religion wants. But number two, number two, faith has emotions but rests in the facts of who Jesus is. See, I'm not telling you you don't have emotions if you believe. We see a whole collision of them in our passage. This passage, I think, gives us all kinds of hope. Did you realize how many times when I read it that, that Matthew says, behold? Notice what he says, behold the earthquake, behold the angel, behold the announcement, and then notice even, behold the ladies. Now don't miss this. For all of our sisters and the daughters of God that are here, here are women who were so marginalized in the first century, they weren't even allowed to testify in court. And it is to women, the daughters of Eve, who watched Jesus die, and it would be they who would first see him alive. Is that not a beautiful picture of an awesome and great God? And this is what they do. And what's most importantly in our passage, Matthew says, Behold Jesus. Behold Jesus. Now, I love this because I want you to notice, now this is Sunday. And the angel, when he talks, what does he say? Fear not. Fear not. Because remember, it says that they had this fear and excitement, and they were frightened. Now, we know when this angel appeared that when the disbelievers saw him, they trembled and they pass out in fear. But these, these ladies see him, and he says, fear not. Because I love this. Because listen, if you're here this morning, faith admits we struggle. Faith admits sometimes we even doubt. Faith admits we are afraid. And faith at times even questions. But the angel like Jesus, we need to realize that we trust in the object of our faith, not the size of our faith. It is not the size of my faith that makes me a Christian. It's who my faith is in, and that is Jesus. And even if I have a little tiny bit of faith, that's all it takes. Because Jesus is the one in whom my objective faith is in. 
And I want you to notice that's what John means in 1 John chapter 3. Let me read these words. These are some of my favorite words. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 20. John the apostle, the beloved one who was there at the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And this is what he writes. He says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And notice this, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, listen to these, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. You see, even my heart will lie to me. Sometimes I doubt. Sometimes I question. Sometimes I screw up. And sometimes I get my Bible and I go and I live life and I come in and I go, Lord, I, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know how you would love me. I don't know why you would love me. I don't know if all this is real. And, and God says, listen, God is better than your heart is. His truth and his reality says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence, not in ourselves, look at this, before God. And whatever we ask, from, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So in other words, we trust him even though sometimes it's tough. We trust him even though sometimes we struggle. And this is his commandment. Here it is. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. For whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given. So I want you to stop and notice something else with, with me. I, have you ever noticed in, in Luke 24, in Matthew, in Mark, and in John, you are never given an eyewitness account of the resurrection itself. Nobody has ever said, I was there and I saw him get up. Nobody ever says that. All we are given is the consequences of the resurrection. Nobody ever saw it happen. We see the effects of it happen. We see an empty tomb. We see clothes left behind. We've seen a stone rolled away. An angel invites these ladies to go and investigate and see the effects of Jesus being raised from the dead. And when they see him, they toke hold of his feet. So we know he's not a ghost. He wasn't a figment of their imagination. He was real. And so faith Faith grabs a hold of the facts of Jesus, even though our emotions may struggle. Now, let's look at religion. Number three, religion knows the power of Christ sometimes better than Christians do. I have talked with many religious people in this city, and they know all about Jesus. Many people in the city can quote the Bible better than a lot of people that are in churches. Take the time to notice what is said where look at verse 11 of chapter 28. Chapter 28 verse 11. While they were going, that's the ladies were going after they have seen Jesus, behold some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests of all that had taken place. I want you to notice the sequence of event. The religious elite were the first to hear and know that Jesus had risen from the dead. These scribes and Pharisees, these these leaders, they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead before the guys did before the disciples did. But to them, it wasn't good news. It was the worst news of all because now their fears have become reality. Now, what are their options? And I would submit their options are our options. They can either repent, they can believe, they can accept, and they can confess, but we see it never. And I want you, if you are here, and this is your first time around church or first time around faith, let me tell you something about religion, okay? Remember, Religion asks the wrong questions, focuses on the wrong issues, and fears the wrong things or people. Religion will do that. 
It asks the wrong questions. It focuses on the wrong things. It fears the wrong people. But as one man has written, I love this, one pastor said, if Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is often called the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 27, 62 to 17 should be called the Great Cover-Up. All right, so we have the Great Cover-Up followed by the Great Commission. And the irony here is incredible. I mean, look at it. Look at the lie these guys come up with. The cover story is the very thing they tried to stop. They go into Pilate and they say, listen, we're afraid that his disciples are going to come and they're going to overtake the guard. They'll break in, they'll steal the body of Jesus, and they'll take off. And wouldn't you know it, when he rises from the dead, what's their story? Exactly what they thought the story was going to be. That's how creative they were. I mean, they were wonderfully creative. And then they say, so tell me that God, again, doesn't have a sense of humor. And again, this is why I was fascinated by last night's article, The Resurrection. Faith, fact, or forgery. And they're still focused on this very thing today. That this was well-meaning followers. Now, I love this. These were guys that scattered like flies. Now, all of a sudden, these fishermen, these guys that of all the 11, only one guy had any kind of military background, which was Simon the Zealot. Other than that, these are a bunch of homemade guys from back alley water, Galilee, all right? And they're, they're supposed to go now and take on a garrison, overcome them, roll the stone away, steal the body, and to this day it's stolen, and nobody knows where it is. Now, think about that. And ask yourself, what actually takes more faith? Really? So... Religion works hard to disprove what it says is not true. Faith has emotions but accepts what is true. Religion knows the power of Jesus sometimes better than Christians do. But now I want to bring it home with this. Jesus being alive gives us the ability to be both real and yet empowered. And I want you to take this home. Finally, look at how Jesus commissions us. You get to that very end of it in Matthew chapter 18. And Jesus came and said to them, now notice what he says, all authority, not most of authority, not some authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And if that's true, then I'm telling you to go and make disciples of everybody, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them. What I taught you, you teach other people, and you just live that out for me. The Great Commission is called great because it engulfs the whole world. And it doesn't mean your color, your ethnic background, your gender, your age. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. If you will come to Jesus, he wants you. I love this. One of my pastor mentors said to me, Stephen, I never met the sinner who went to God who God didn't want. And it doesn't matter who you are. If you will go to Jesus, he wants you. I want you to take all of this with you. But it's also the Great Commission because it was given by a great God who sent His great Son with His great Spirit, and they have been greatly successful. The resurrection of Jesus is being preached every single Sunday, and it's being preached this Sunday. And let's think bigger than ourselves. Today, the resurrection of Jesus is being celebrated and preached from St. John's, Newfoundland to San Antonio, from Charlottetown to Cairo, from Moscow to Montreal, from Dakar to Dartmouth, from Baghdad to Boston, from Reno to the, the province of Regina. God is building His church. The gates of hell will not and cannot and shall not prevail against it but I want you to notice the emotions of these disciples because it says in our passage that some of them worshipped and some doubted 
Now, I want you to think about this lie and this cover-up. One pastor puts it like this. Men might die because they are brainwashed or fooled. Now, that should come very much to our minds when we think about the world you and I live in today. Because a lot of men and women are blowing themselves up and dying, and the reality is it's because they're brainwashed or fooled. Think about it. If you think all the way back to the Second World War and, and those Japanese uh, 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 kamikaze missions or Islamic terrorists sacrificing themselves today for reported honor or reward. But step back and think. Men and women don't usually die for something they are certain is a lie. No one says if they know it's not true and you say, now go die for it. Someone like, well, sign me up for that. If they really believe it's a lie. So if the disciples knew where the body of Jesus was, if they actually stole it and hid it, do you think what would possibly be their motive for preaching the resurrection then? If they knew it was a lie. Because was it money? I don't think so because none of them had money. All of them were dead within a generation. All by martyrdom. They all gave up their lives. It wasn't for reputation because they thought they were fools. They gave up families and homes and acceptability. See, the gospel cost the disciples everything. But look at their courage and even their lack of it. If the disciples didn't have enough courage to stick with Jesus until the cross, where did it all come from after the burial of Jesus? (laughs) You know what? It's because they got to see the resurrected body of Jesus. They knew he was alive. Something real and historical happened. Jesus rising from the dead is, well, folks, it's just right. It just is. And to say that the early church embraced this spiritual resurrection of Jesus and not a a physical one, well, if you'll allow me to be a bit of a Newfoundlander, I just think that's just stupid. All right? I think that's just stupid. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul outlines the results of a Jesus who never rose from the dead. Because a a church in Corinth asked Paul and said, do you you really think Jesus rose from the dead? Do you really believe that? And so in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 to 19, Paul points out what this world would be like without a resurrection. Think about this, all right? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, number one, Christ would not be risen. Well, duh, do the V8 smack on your forehead, right? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he didn't rise from the dead. Paul has already established, though, that he has. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, number two, our preaching the gospel would be meaningless. Really, why am I doing what I'm doing if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? I am the most deceived and deluded of human beings. Without the resurrection, the good news would be the bad news, and there'd be nothing worth preaching. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, faith in Christ is actually worthless. It's worthless. Don't bother. John MacArthur says, the hall of the faithful in Hebrews 11 would instead be the hall of the foolish. Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, David, the prophets, and all the others would have been faithful for nothing. They would have been mocked and scourged, imprisoned, stoned, afflicted, ill-treated, and put to death completely in vain. All believers of all ages would have believed for nothing, lived for nothing, and died for nothing. Church, listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all witnesses to and preachers of the resurrection would be liars. 
I have to be honest, if you're here this morning and Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is about the worst waste of your time that you can find. And I have given my life to nothing. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 15, it says, we, are we, being preachers, are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Jesus, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If we deny the full resurrection of Jesus and the dead, then the apostles and every other proclaimer of the gospel is a liar, including me. And you all have the right in course to go, liar, liar, pants on fire. You really do. Number five, but I should say before I get that, yet Hebrews tells us by two immutable things, God cannot lie. He can't lie. Number five, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all men would still be in their sins. There is no hope. Paul says in verse 16 and 17, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then sin won, Satan won, and we are eternally damned. And that's why Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But God did raise Jesus our Lord from the dead. And according to Romans 4, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him and at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. But if God didn't, or if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then you know what? All of you here, all former believers would have eternally perished. Everybody who died, died. That's the logical conclusion of no resurrection. Every Old Testament saint, every New Testament saint, every person we know would be dead, and either your, your belief system is they're rotting in the ground, that, that, that's as good as it gets, or worse, in some sort of eternal torment, sins unforgiving, our destiny and theirs would only be damnation, which leads to the only conclusion we can. Number seven, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, Christians would be the most pitiful people on earth. Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So think about Easter. To have hoped in Christ in this life would only be to teach, preach, suffer sacrifice, and work entirely for nothing. Again, John MacArthur says, a Christian who has no Savior but Christ, no Redeemer but Christ, no Lord but Christ, therefore if Christ is not raised, he is not alive, and our Christian life is lifeless. We would have nothing to justify our faith, our Bible studies, our preaching or witnessing, our service for him or our worship to him. And may I quote the most modern of, of detectives, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, who said, when we have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Because Jesus is alive. There are 330 plus prophecies in the Old Testament that are all fulfilled in Jesus. And 1 Corinthians 15 in the first 10 verses gives us the greatest set of eyewitnesses for any historical figure we could ever ask. Lives, thousands of lives transformed and made true and made new because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And guys, if you want to see this in modern life, uh, guys here, how many of you guys who follow basketball heard of the coach Mon Monty Williams? Anybody here that follows? I, I see one hand there. That's, that's a good athlete there. Anybody else? Monty Williams? He, he's the ex-basketball uh, coach for the New Orleans Pelicans. Just in the last couple of months, his wife was tragically killed, mother of five. 
but he's a believer in Jesus Christ. The lady that ran into her was going twice the legal speed limit and was texting. And she ran a, 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 a stoplight and she plowed into this lady and killed her. If you go to YouTube and type in Monty Williams' eulogy, it'll be the best 7 to 11 minutes you've ever listened to as this man talks about the death of his wife and what it means to him and his family. But he believes in Jesus and he believes in the resurrection. And one of the parts he says in here that I find fascinating, he says, do not say to me, oh, I feel bad that you've lost your wife. Because he says, lost means I don't know where she is. I didn't lose my wife. I know where she is. She's in heaven because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, that's not the most fascinating part of this story for me. Because a week later, I was listening to my Sirius Satellite Radio on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, there's this satellite sports talk show called Dan Lebetard. And for those of you, I know this is completely boring to most of you. But for guys that are into sports, it's pretty cool. All right? Dan Lebetard is like the Howard Stern of sports radio. He's a, bit, he's a bit shock value. He gets into stuff. And uh, so on his talk show, he was talking about Monte Williams' eulogy. And his only comment was, I don't know if I believe in Jesus. I don't know if I have any faith. I don't know if religion is right. I don't know. I don't know. But I admire a guy that when faced with unexplainable tragedy has something that he can cling to and seems so centered and at peace in the face of the unexplainable. Well, the phones lit up by the atheists and the agnostics and the skeptics who accused him of belittling those who didn't believe in Jesus. And it went on for two hours where Dan Lebetard went back and forth with all these texts and phone calls. And his final thing as they went to break blew me away. He said, I'm not here to say who's right and who's wrong. But he said, I will tell you this, in my life, I have never met the atheist. I have never met the person who denies Jesus. I have never met the man or woman who says none of it's true, that when they face unexplainable tragedy, have this kind of peace and centeredness and resolve and joy in the face of unimaginable hurt. And this is a guy who says he doesn't even believe. Christians, where are we? Where are we? Friends, don't doubt, and even if you do, rest in Jesus' power, His authority, and His promise. And so as we finish up this morning, I'm going to ask you again. What is your belief in the resurrection? By faith, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Okay, one poet puts it like this. The curtain is torn in two. The cross and tomb are empty. The cup of wrath has drained. The victory has been won. The serpent has been crushed. The throne is occupied. It is finished. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday is the biggest event in human history. Or it's the greatest lie perpetrated on humanity. It's one or the other. The Bible clearly, plainly, authoritatively, unashamedly proclaims some basic truths about God and humanity. Here they are. We deserve to die as the penalty for sin. That's just the facts. Okay? Number two, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. Number three, we are separated from God by our sins. We must. How can a holy God have sin in His presence? Number three, we are in bondage to sin and the kingdom of Satan. Those are, again, just the reality of it. 
The books of the Bible, all of them bear this out over and over and over again, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But the bad news makes the good news even better. And as you leave here, I want you to know this. Jesus died as a sacrifice for us to pay the penalty of death that we deserved because of our sin. Jesus died for you and for me. Even better than that, Jesus died as a propitiation for our sins. What that means is he put himself in our place. Where I should have died, Jesus died for me. Where my sin should cause me pain, Jesus took my pain. And number three, Jesus experienced human death and human separation from God. Why? To overcome our separation from God. He provided reconciliation for us to be brought back into fellowship with God. And number four, through Jesus' death, we can experience redemption from bondage to sin and Satan so that we now live in newness of life. And it's all because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, folks, listen. If you fall on the fact of, you know what, I don't know if Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know if this is true. All right, well then, here's my words of wisdom for you as you go your separate ways today. Live any way you want. Really. Don't worry your head over this stuff. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, go and live any way you want. Seek as much pleasure for yourself as possible because after all, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you may die. I mean, that's your MO now for life. This life is as good as it gets. So make it as good as you can make it because it can't get any better than what it is right now. If Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead, I do want you to know though, then death is your ultimate enemy. And it should be feared and shunned and loathed and hidden from because it's the greatest enemy and we are helpless and hopeless to stop it. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all we see around us, the chaos, the killing, the cheating, the survival of the fittest is your only hope. Darwin was right. It was really and truly the survival of the fittest. And every one of us, we are in the ultimate game of survivor. It is whoever can outlast, outwit, and outplay others wins until you die. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all sacrifices, selfless acts, kindness, and love are really shams. For what are we doing them for? Live for yourself. But what if Jesus rose from the dead? What if Jesus is who he says he is? Then everything is different. Then you can be made right with God. And so now we live this life with eternity in mind. Now we know that it is not as good as it gets. Something better is coming. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you can face any and all circumstances, even with contentment. If Jesus rose from the dead, you can face suffering with joy and peace. You can face persecution with hope and insurance. You can forgive and love and help others sacrificially. We can trust God even when nothing makes sense because our eternal standing does. We can live without shame or guilt. We can find power over any sin. We can have patience in our fight against the presence of sin. We have hope that God will save others beside us. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the world. We no longer fear Satan because Jesus is alive. Now, what do you believe? What do you believe? Easter is for stark contradictions. If Christ is still dead, then death reigns. And as one man says, so hoard every plastic Easter egg you can find because whatever you find inside is all the joy you have to grab a hold of. But if death is dead 
And if the dead are raised, if Christ is risen from the dead, brothers and sisters, then let's feast and celebrate. For the dawning light of our inexhaustible and inextinguishable eternal pleasures have broken into darkness. Today, will you delight in the resurrection joy of Christ and pray it bigger in your life and treasure it for all eternity. And so we're going to end this morning by singing, He is risen. And if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, in a real relationship, you've got questions or doubts or you're curious or you're even skeptical, please talk to me. Talk to somebody. Christians, not just today, will you live the rest of this year in the light and the reality? Our God lives and death and sin and Satan are not our enemies because of Jesus. He's overcome them. And we have a greater power. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to gather and proclaim your word. And once again, Lord, I do pray that my friends and family and brothers and sisters in Christ here will have heard a better sermon than I have preached. But, oh God, I know that at Easter time, there's many visitors and friends, people maybe hearing this for the first time, people trying to make sense of it all. And Lord, I know that many people here have probably seen a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of inconsistencies in the Christian life. Lord, I'm the biggest hypocrite of them all. I have run my mouth more times and screwed up and failed. But my God and my Savior, right now through your Holy Spirit, would you show the people in this room and downstairs that salvation in Jesus is not based on my perfection but yours. Lord, I don't stand and proclaim this because I'm perfect. I stand and proclaim it because a perfect Savior has forgiven me and is using me. And Father, you will forgive anybody and use them. Lord, help us to trust in you and look for you. And may it change the way we think and act and live because Jesus Christ is risen. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.